This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Bumping Into. This is the story of how Reebok came to be. It is the story that Joe Foster, the Reebok founder, has written in his new book called Shoemaker. I would recommend that you probably, well, either way, you should read the book, whether you decide to read it after the podcast or before the podcast. It's beautifully written and covers so many aspects of, uh, from, it's an autobiography, it's a history of the brand, it's a business book, it's a motivational book. It's got a little bit of everything in there and chapter after chapter, you, you know, you just want to keep reading. You don't want the book to end by the time it does. It really feels like you know the characters so well. I was lucky enough to organise a conversation with Joe, who is the founder of Reebok, and ask him some of the questions that I suppose I had wanted to dive a bit deeper in that related to certain points within the book. Hence why I am saying it it's probably is a good idea if you do read the book. But look, get to the end of the podcast if you are keen to jump straight in. And if you wanted to know more, make your way to the book. I'll put a link on our website where you can grab the book online as well. And here is the show. Hello. Hey, Joe, you. Have you got me? Got you. Yes. Oh. <laughs> got you. <laughs> we finally we finally made it. <laughs> yeah, we just got confused with the we, – we moved into summertime yesterday. Oh, right. So we're at one hour earlier, as it were. Yeah. Than, uh, so it, that, this confused Julie. I'm always confused with this. So she's been trying to get this, uh, the timing together. Oh, thank you. Look, I, I appreciate it. And pass my thank you on to Julie as well for all her back and forth and, and trying to line it all up. I, I appreciate her time and her effort as well. You know, she's like this. It's almost every day for Julie, this. <laughs> organizing, organizing everything. Fortunately, Julie can do the organizing, and I can just sit here and uh, hopefully connect. <laughs> so. I'm so thankful that you've come onto the show because I've read your book, and I, I actually I fell in love with your book. I, I saw it by chance. I was walking past the bookshop, and I just happened to see it. And um, I grabbed it up, and I started reading it that night, and I had to force myself to put it down um because it's it's just it's an outstanding book it's it's got every aspect of what makes a good book it's autobiography it's it's got history it's a you know history of the brand history of you it's motivational it's business um but the thing for me is i i love reading but i'm not uh, overly good at it you know to, to keep doing it but when a book speaks to you um it and that's what yours does it's it's almost like you you know you're in the pages and it just grips you and you, you don't want to put the book down. And um, I ended up um, getting the audio book and I put that on and um, we went away for a, a weekend and I had that on in the car. And every time I'd come back from work, I kept listening to the audio book. My wife was even saying to me, oh, what, what happened now? What happened then? What happened with this? Um, so it, it got her hooked on it as well. Oh, very good. Thank you very much. That's, that's excellent. So what I thought I'd like to do is, I've made a few few uh, points in the book that resonated with me, and I think anyone that's interested in the book and listening to this podcast should read the book first because, um, you know, there's there's too much in there. My original, before I'd finished it, I thought, oh, maybe we could do a timeline. Um, but after reading that book, there is no way you could do a timeline in a podcast. There is just too much in there and and too much essential information that ties into the next thing to the next thing. and the So there was no way... I thought of that. But what I did come up with is going, giving an overview and then working way through some of these points that I made that I wanted to quiz you on some of the deeper meaning as such. Brilliant. That's, so, that's, that's good to me. Yeah. What I, one thing, and I suppose uh, I'm sure other people probably would have picked up on, is initially when you pick up the book, if, if you, you know, a few pages in, um, yeah. you you could, you would, I suppose, when you're reading a book about a successful business, a lot of people think it was a, either a turnkey success or someone handed them a, a handful of money and said, go and do whatever you like. Um, right. And especially when, like, you know, you, you came from a shoe family, I suppose the initial thing is you could think, well, oh, well, he came from a shoe family. He had a head start. He had the factory. He had the know-how. But that wasn't the case at all. It was very much you were, you were born into a, a working-class family, and um, and as it you know played out, you really had to to fight for every aspect 
with, within that. It was no, no one ever handed out anything at the early stages, did they? Oh, no. We, we, we were not flush with money at all. Just uh, I, I suppose what we had was maybe the DNA to say, yeah, we know about shoes, um, but we needed a successful business. And as you've read in the book, unfortunately, the, uh, the parent business was re- being run by my father and uncle. Yeah. And they had no business sense. They just argued for, did whatever. So that beautiful business that my grandfather had built was just dying. And we yeah. were fortunate enough to have gone away for two years doing national service, getting away from the business, seeing other things, coming back and realizing just how this business was failing. It was going down. And yet my father and uncle, they were, it was just a job. It, was, it just paid them money. They were just going through life. Yeah. They were not experiencing business. And, and, I, and I guess that uh, somewhere, something inside Jeff and myself said, no, we, this is a business. We need, to, we need to create one because this, this is going to be dead long before our father and uncle are dead. And, and it yeah. did. It died two years after we left. And, and what was interesting is your grandfather was was much more like you in that he was a, more of that entrepreneurial spirit and more pushing the boundaries and looking to be better, to do more, um, and, and even had a bit of that marketing sense. Like I suppose maybe it was that founder's hunger that, that fueled that a bit more for him. Yeah, I, and I, I also think way, way back in 1904, when he, he obviously gave the shoes to Al Shrub, who broke three world records. So he was an influencer. He knew what influencing was about. Yeah. He knew that give things to the right people and the word will spread. And so he was brilliant to that, absolutely brilliant. And yes, had he been, well, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I was born on his birthday, oh, 18 yeah. months after he died, <laughs> which is rather a coincidence, but possibly had he been born when I was born, um, yeah, he would have been oh, an Adidas or a whatever. He would have been a number one. Mind you, we did get to number one, you know. <laughs> yeah. We did yeah. get to number one. But you know, he, was, he was obviously brilliant at what he did. You know, that's interesting. You, you, the, one of the things that resonated with me is you mentioned in the book um, that the path to success wasn't straight or defined. A lot of decisions were made on, off the hoof and uh, it took 30 years and, you know, you said if you'd, um, you may have arrived sooner if you'd made a few different decisions, but this is what grabbed me is you knew that without that long meandering journey, you wouldn't have been prepared for the destination. Is, is there a, you know, I mean, obviously you feel in the book that you know, there was this unfolding of one happened and the next happened and it was then one step back and then another step forward, two steps forward. But w- what was it that made you feel that you needed that, 30-year period rather than having all the wishes come at once? Well, you know, we, uh, we, had, we had to make do with the business that we had. The problem is when Jeff and I left the uh, parent company, um, the, big, the big business really in the UK was football, soccer, yeah. football. Uh, but Adidas, by that time, Adidas had come in and Adidas owned football. For us to go into football... We, we would have needed to have spent an awful lot of money. That was a big, so we couldn't get there. So we had to take a meandering route. We had to find a way to the top, which didn't involve football. Um, my grandfather had been supplying 96 of the league clubs. My grandfather was supplied with training shoes and football boots. So what happened when my uncle and father took over the business? They didn't see where the business was. They were just happy. I mean, the business was so good, the orders just came in daily. Everything just came in. They didn't have to go and look for the business. They didn't have to push the business. It just came to them. Grandfather did too good a job on the business, but he hadn't done a good job on his sons. He hadn't led them into, this is what we've got to do. They, They obviously never sat around and talked about business strategy. So, they, so they didn't have any. And uh, when Jeff and I came in, we looked, and what was our business strategy? Well, how do you get to the top when this big football, uh, which was big in sport, when that was uh, so big that uh, we were just 
minerals, minute, minute little company in yeah. athletics. And the only way that I could think is that we needed America because in America, uh, athletics was something big and running, running became massive in America. So that's where the market was. So we had to deviate quite a bit. Instead of being nice and straight and growing big in, the, uh, in England, in the UK, and mind you, we did become acknowledged as the number one athletics company, running company in the UK. We, we, were, we were number one there. Uh, but really, they got a business to really get big, we needed to go to America. So the strategy was, how do we, how do we get volume? And, uh, and of course, as you know, the volume didn't come through actually manufacturing. The volume came through marketing. And we had to go to South Korea to get production. And we had to go to America to get the sales. So, you know, it was, it was a route that not always was it planned. But, uh, you know, when, when you see the opportunity, you have to go and chase it. And so, and that's what we did. And we had an awful lot of luck. But, you know, I'd like to say 30 years of working at it, then overnight we get success. But, and yeah. we did. Once we got into America, we got success. You, you know, in the book you talked about, um, you touched on the sacrifices and the toll that it took to get to that point um, when it became the biggest sporting brand. In retrospect, would you say that there's simply no other way that you could have done it without that toll and sacrifice, that it was, you know, you, you just can't build what you built if you turn up eight in the morning and leave at five, six o'clock every night, it's just not going to happen any other way? Well, it was uh, eight o'clock would be late to start <laughs> and six o'clock, six o'clock would be early to finish. <laughs> <laughs> this was much more consuming than that. Uh, <clears throat> you know, any, any path to wherever you want to go, um, it, it's not so easy. I can see the path and just go, you know, for some people, maybe that happens. But for us in those days, we didn't have social media. You know, we didn't have computers or smartphones. We just didn't have those things. So for me to, uh, to take the company forward, I either had to get on the road or get on a train or get on an airplane. Yeah. I had to go places, meet people. And, uh, and, and there's no, you know, a tremendous amount of luck as to meeting the right people, being there yeah. at the time. But, you know, I went to America first time in 1968, and uh, we didn't get a foothold in America until 1979. That's 11 years. And yeah, I had that's 11... a long time. <laughs> it is long. Today, it's a very long time. Uh, in those days, I was just going to America. I was trying to break into that market. And I had six failed attempts. I had six people that I started to work with. They started to import the shoes, but they didn't make, they just didn't get in there. And it was 1979 before we actually got in there. And as you've read the book, we did that by having a five-star shoe. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, when, when you go back to, the, I suppose, being away and travelling a lot, the key thing um, was that it, Jeff was obviously was there when you weren't and Jeff was working. And it seemed as if that Jeff was very much in the workshop working on the product while you were the one out working, pushing the business aside, I guess you would say. Yeah, well, Jeff loved the factory. He really loved it. He loved making shoes. He loved doing all the, uh, uh, the work to bring it from a drawing to a, a shoe. He, he loved the, the development with me. And he said, he said to me, Joe, he said, I love this. Thing. You, you do everything else. <laughs> so... Wow. I was left with everything else and whatever that meant, whether it was selling and, and I'm sure I made a ton of mistakes. I must've done along that route. And I know one almost took us out of business, but you know, you don't see the mistake at the time you see these things as opportunities, but sometimes the opportunity leads you down the wrong path. And uh, so I, I made a lot of mistakes, but the one thing we had seen my father and uncle fighting, feuding, just completely not talking to each other. And if they did, it was bad words, or bad feelings. And Jeff and I never had a bad word together at all. And, and I must have done an awful lot of things wrong, but he, he, never, he never felt that he would chastise. And I, I think maybe he thought, well, I like the factory and we're doing okay. The rest of it, he, he didn't have any feeling for marketing, sales, um, you know, developing the business. 
but he but he knew I was sort of more of that personality. I could be more outgoing. I, I could jump on a plane with a handful of uh, American Express travellers' checks and go somewhere and not worry about where I'm going and why I'm going, but just go somewhere and meet people. So we, we had... I don't say uh, we, we wrote anything down, but we just definitely had divi- uh, different roles in, in the in well-defined in the company. And Jeff just stayed with the factory and I did the rest. And you know, when, like obviously once it, it grew, it grew bigger, you had people come in that, you know, like Paul Feynman and, and Shu, who were, you know, key, I suppose, partners whether they were at that time boarding partners or whatever but they were helping the same cause but before that point when it was when it was it's very much jeff was there and you were out on the road and you even made the comment at one point that you said it it's it felt like you were just running around putting out fires is was the you know a lot of businesses end up getting well they if they can uh, a person that becomes the, the right-hand man, someone that, you know, if you're not there, you know they're making that decision how you would want it. And it, it seemed like it was very much all on your shoulders until it got quite big rather than you having that offsider to bounce things off or, or to do some of your workload. Yeah, well, I, uh, I mean, we, we've got to look and, and say we're viewing things now with the technologies that we have particularly the uh, media technologies. You know, we, we're how many miles apart? Four, five, five, five maybe 7,000 miles apart. And yet we can just sit here as though we're just at the other side of the table and have a chat. You know, th- there's no problem with it. It's great. Zoom is absolutely brilliant. Um, when I went anywhere, I, I'd be lucky if I could get a telephone call to the office, to the factory. Because wow. in, in those days, we didn't have satellites. We had... We had underground lines, so there were just wires. And uh, there's only so many wires you can put underground. So if I'm in Italy, and, and I can quote Italy, being in Italy, I, I go to the desk of the hotel and say, I want to make a call. And I'd give them all the detail and then say, we'll call you back. And sometimes that would take three days. Jeez. <laughs> they couldn't get a line through from Italy to the UK because lines were busy. And, you know, right now with satellites, it's, it's incredible. You know, and uh, everything's uh, digitalized data. It's, it's all so different. So when I'm making a decision, I just had to make a decision where I was and that was it. And Jeff in, in the business, he, he, he ran the factory. So whatever decisions he had to make, he had to make on his own. And, uh, Okay, uh, Jeff's was not as varied as mine, but this is how we had to work. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we were almost two separate businesses in a way. You know, I was a marketing business and Jeff was uh, making shoes. You know, he was a factory. So, uh, and and this is how we grew. I mean, normally, uh, if we'd have been in football, we would have been selling to every sports shop in the country, in the UK. And that would have been a nice big business for us. That would have been a big business. But we, uh, as I say, we couldn't get into that. So we had to spread out, get to America. And it's only when we got to America, really, that gave the company the opportunity to really expand, to explode. Uh, For me, the American market was so influential on global business, and certainly on global sports business, and uh, so getting into that, 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 that's why I took 11 years. I had to get in. It wasn't a question of, well, it's too tough. I've got to give up. No, we had to get in. And uh, fortune, good fortune was on our side because running in America, um, at the very late 60s, it started to grow. And with it, the magazine Runner's World. And Runner's World was just an A4 page. By 1975, Runner's World was a glossy 50-page magazine telling every runner where the next races were, who won the last races. It was a Bible. And everybody in America, think, 350 million Americans, 10% by that time were running. They were going out, training, running, running. Shoot. So that's, you're thinking, 350, that's 35 million. A lot, and of a lot of people. 
And uh, and Runner's World, Bob Anderson. Bob Anderson, he was, he, I mean, his success was amazing, just as Nike. Nike grew with that same growth. But uh, Bob Anderson thought he could tell everybody which shoe to wear. And he, so he said, I'll tell you the number one shoe. And he did. And, they, and that was Nike. It was a Nike shoe. But uh, Phil Knight, Phil Knight is importing his shoes from Japan. Yeah. Now, yeah. And if we think there's 35 million runners, 10% are going to want that number one shoe. Three and a half million runners want to buy that Nike shoe. Uh, how, how does he get three and a half million out of that production factory? How does he get that growth? He didn't. <laughs> he just didn't. And by the time the production was moving up, 12 months later, Bob Anderson said, oh, no, there's another new shoe now. This is a number one. <laughs> and it, it was like just a matter of him deciding which was number one. And, yeah. you know, how, how do you do that? And that, that disrupted the, uh, the retail business. The retail uh, business in America it was disrupting them because the demand was for a shoe they couldn't get. And when they could get it, all of a sudden, the demand was for another shoe. So I don't know whether Bob Anderson was sort of instructed or whatever or made a decision, but he changed from telling everybody which was the number one shoe to he went to a star rating. So five stars, well, you could have four or five shoes at five stars, and then it would go down four stars. And I knew when he did that, I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew we could do that. We were in the business. That's what we were. We, we were an athletic shoe company. We knew exactly how to make a five-star shoe. You couldn't guarantee it, but we knew how to do it. And getting that five-star shoe, that's what made the difference. Because instead of me trying to push my way into America, all of a sudden, this was the hook. The hook was, oh, Reebok is five-star shoe. We want, just like Bob Anderson saying, that's the number one shoe. All of a sudden, people wanted Reebok. And that's, that was the difference. It was finding the way that uh, you, there was a hunger for your product. And once you got it in there, that, that started the growth. But say, it took me a while to get to America in the first place, and then it took me 11 years of going to America to really get that, uh, that opportunity. And from then on, of course, we just, we just grew. Yeah, Jesus. So the, the other thing that um, really, uh, I suppose, I resonated with, and it was, it was obviously a very sad chapter, is... Um, once you, you know your brother Jeff died and replacing him, and you you mentioned um, that it took three people to fill, you know his role, what he was doing, and um, I mean that, you know that that's uh, to, to lose your brother and your best friend, uh, and your business partner, um, you know your ability to to pick up and keep going was um, was extremely strong. It was amazing, oh, you know. I can appreciate that what that impact would be like. I mean, I, you know, my brother and I are very close, and we've worked together in a small business for for twenty years. Um, and to for me to think of plucking him out of the equation, the first thing in my mind is there is no more business. You know, he he's that influential and that important in it that I couldn't fathom pushing forward. Um, and it must have been it just must have taken every you know bit of of I suppose. Uh, stoic mindset for you to just pick up the pieces and say, well, we have to continue. Yeah. I mean, I think as you are, you're looking inwards on what happened. When, when I was, I mean, it was a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. We'd just, just got into America. We we're on that cusp. Jeff's role would have changed. He would have been going to Korea. He would have been developing mm-hmm. the shoes. He would have been doing all that. And all of a sudden that wasn't, but you know, whilst this is a tragedy, and, and, and I think that you would probably be the same. You turn around because you have a mission and the two of you had, had a mission. And I guess, I guess what it did for me was, well, no, you double the effort because no, we are going to succeed. We're definitely going to succeed in spite of it. And because, because you lose uh, somebody like Jeff, losing Jeff was, uh, as I say, an absolute tragedy. But the, the thing is that everything came on my shoulders then. I hadn't got you, but you know, you can then make decisions. It sounds, it sounds weird, but you can make decisions without even having to look at anybody. And you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's almost, I, I don't, it's almost an anger. It's almost a sort of in spite of, you just do, you, you make those decisions and 
you, you take the whole thing and you're absolutely determined that this is going to work because you know, the structure was still there, the factory is still there, the people were still there. And the, there was a guy who could just, you know, he, he was the guy who ran the factory anyway. Jeff was sort of controlling it, doing everything. But the guy on the floor, Norman, he was well, he could, he could keep the factory going. Then I needed somebody else to do the design in, which I brought in Paul Brown. And uh, there was a girl I knew who was very efficient at office work, so she could look after the office. So, yeah, it took three people to do what Jeff had been doing. Mm. Um, but they were not difficult decisions. They were, it was like, you know, how do I do this? No, it wasn't how do I do this? I do this. And surprise enough, and, and I'm pretty sure that anybody in my position would have probably been the same. I don't think I was exceptional in doing this. I just think that uh, it's almost like you can't say, look, we, we've gone so far. We've, we've got go to back. this place. We can't yeah. go back, you know? So with or without, we, you know, we, we've got to keep going. Yeah. And I'm sure Jeff would have been absolutely delighted. At, uh, um, and, you know, if you have a regret, one regret I have is that Jeff never could never saw the, the growth of the company to be a number one. So, yeah, and that's very sad. But, uh, but I guess, again, you throw yourself into the business, so you have no time to worry about these things. You've just got to get on with it, and you just make sure that you you work. Do you think that it was um, ultimately the the hunger that you had and, and Jeff had as well, but to be the best shoes, or was it that you had in your mind the biggest? I don't think I ever had in my mind biggest. I I I, I can only sort of say it's like. You know, the race isn't over until you've won. And there are many stages in that race that you're not winning, but it's not over until you've won. So it was like, okay, no, we're going to go around this. We're going to go through this. There's another way that, you know, there's, there's not a, a stage where you stop and say, enough's enough. You know, there's not, never, never was that stage. It was always a question, right, if you hit, if you hit some barriers, you know, come on, we can either go over, we can go around, can I go through? So we'd done that right from the early days of having to change our name. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, we had to change our name. And then we had to change our silhouette. Our silhouette used to be two stripes and a T-bar. But uh, we, and we were only four years into our business and we got this letter from the lawyers of Adidas. And they said, uh, your, uh, your silhouette, your side stripes, they're, they're infringing the Adidas three-stripe mark. And you know we're a small company. <laughs> yeah. And we, oh, you look at this piece of paper. What's all this? And you know it took us two or three minutes, and then we started smiling. Just a minute. Adidas know we're here. Yeah, they're worried. <laughs> yeah, Adidas need need to tell us that the, we're infringing something. Yeah, and that that letter was pinned to the wall for many years. It was like, oh, that goes on the wall. And what did we do? We just changed the silhouette, and we changed it to the vector. And, you know, that was so much better, so much more uh, definable, so much more different than the two stripes and the, and the T-bar. So, you know, out, out of what seems to be a problem, sometimes it's sent to you because, come on, you've got to do better than what you're doing. <laughs> you know, you can do something yeah. better. And that's how we took it. You know, a problem is, okay, we've got a problem. It's because we're doing something wrong. Let's turn it around. Let's see if we can make that problem into an advantage. And we did. Uh, we started off our business as Mercury Sports Footwear. We liked the name Mercury. It was good, but you know, we ended up with Reebok. And Reebok was so much better because so it rolls off the tongue so much easier. Mm, absolutely. And it's stronger. So uh, we, we end up with a better name. We end up with a better silhouette. And a lot of these things uh, that happen in life are opportunities. You know, you look at them sometimes and they, they hit you as a big problem, sometimes really severe, but they are opportunities. And you've got to take those opportunities. Do, do you think um, one thing I've often wondered with manufacturing and coming from a small business as, as you started, where your heart and soul's in it, when you've got the business built around the, you know, I suppose you, even for you, you lived in the premises, but you've got the office and you've got the, the, the factory floor. 
things that are happening in the office are a result of what's happening in the factory floor and those people see those products walk out the door. As soon as you pluck that away, you take manufacturing, you know, obviously everyone goes offshore, but, but be it off-premises, if you're taking that to another country, do you think that takes, does it change the dynamic of, of the staff? Does it all of a sudden remove a little bit of soul from that company? Well, I think that um, the, one of the most important things on building any company is you can't do it on your own. You need help. You need people. And you need to relate to those people. They need to relate to you. They're not employees. They're part of the company. And they've got to feel part of that company. And that way, uh, when, when we had trouble, people, you know, and we did, we, we went to serious trouble. Uh, we lost a distributor and that nearly took us out of business. But it meant we only, even in those early days, we had to cut our staff and cut them down. But then they wanted to come back. And some even wanted to work for nothing. So yeah. it's building a culture. So we were building a culture and it was always, we always gave the information. People, we shared everything with the staff so that they felt a family and you grow this family. Now, when we were taking production to the, uh, to the Far East, you know, it was a question of saying to the guys, look guys, you know, to succeed, this is what we're doing. But we're a small factory. That doesn't matter because we're creating a big company. And a big company needs a lot of specialization, a lot of special shoes, cricket boots, things like that. Now, this is not a tremendous business, but it's a nice business. And that you can do in your small factory. Yeah. So we, and we had uh, high jump shoes, shot put shoes, things like that, things which are very specialized, track and field, field shoes, these, these things, you need them. And shoes uh, for some special athletes. If you have a, an athlete and you need to make something special for it, you can do that. So with the small factory, we, we had this big advantage. This is where you could start to develop, develop the product. You, you could get your ideas through. So the small factory were, was, was excellent. It was really good for us at that time because we could, do, we could keep doing the specialized products. Uh, whereas the volume, the volume had to go to the Far East. And that's yeah. where we get price. And... What do you think would have happened if Reebok didn't crack the American market? Do you think it would have still stayed in a small factory or, or would it have just, you know, fizzed away? Or was there enough in your own area to, to make it still a thriving business? Simple answer to that is I never think that way. Right. I never think of failure. It's, it, it's not part of the, the psyche. If, we, if we're not making it one way, we make it a different way. We, t yeah. we turn, we twist, we, we find something. You don't uh, sit static. It's, uh, it's, you know, you move forward. It's like history. People say, what would you do if this or what? And I say, well, you know, or what, were you, what, what would you have done differently? Now you're where you are. What would you have done differently? And my answer to that is we became number one. We overtook Adidas. We overtook Nike. We became number one sports footwear brand. What's to change? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely. And, yeah. you know, in that early time when Paul Feynman came on, on board and, um, and obviously he was a huge part in growing that American market. Um, Absolutely, yes. What do you think, you know, so there was already was the Nikes, there was the, 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 um, I suppose ASICs would have been probably Adidas. been then and, and Adidas ASICs would have been as well. Yeah. ASICs have been around all the time. Adidas were there. Of course, Nike was the big one. New Balance was there. Uh, Ciccone. There was a lot of shoes around. Yeah, there. yeah. Brooks, yes. And what do you think he, he gravitated towards? Why do you think he had that, I can do something, we can do something? Was it a styling difference or was it, was it you know, he, he felt your drive was there was there one thing that you you could pick on that he saw that different that point of difference? Um, I just think Paul was the right man at the right time. He was hungry enough. He yeah. was hungry to want to do things. But uh, <clears throat> I mean, you've read the book. Running running wasn't our big success. We we were able to turn and maneuver because down in San down in uh, Los Angeles, Ivo Martinez he was a tech rep. He was a good athlete, Arnold, but he was a tech rep. So we would go into the stores and he wouldn't be selling the shoes. He would go in and he, he would 
go to the salespeople and show the salespeople the good points of the shoe, tell them all the best things. But his wife, Frankie, she was going to aerobic classes and coming back with her friends and coming, and they were full of this. And Arnold said, what are you doing? And she said, well, we're, we're doing aerobics. And he said, what's that? And he, she said, well, it's um, exercising to music. Really? Yeah. He said, I'm going to come down to your next class. Is that okay? Yeah. So we went down to that next class. And he sees the instructor in a pair of sneakers. I think there would probably be New Balance, because New Balance did start off making an all-white sneaker. And so the uh, instructors in a pair of sneakers, half the class are in the same sneaker. Whatever the instructor were, they would buy. And uh, the rest of the class, they weren't wearing anything, no sneakers. Oh, yeah. um, and this was sort of a light bulb moment for Arhill. He thought, why don't we make a specific shoe for aerobics and for women? Because they were all women. On a woman's last, which is narrower, only in women's sizes, and make it out of glove leather. Soft, so it feels as though they're putting a glove on it. Oh, beautiful, comfortable. And with this idea, he went from uh, L.A., took the red eye up to Boston to see Paul Feynman. And he's telling Paul Feynman, look, Paul, this is going to be big. It really is. It's there, and it's moving. In, in L.A., everybody's now starting to do All the women are doing aerobics. And Paul's saying, slow down. Slow down now. We're, we're a running company. What do we want to be doing making dancing shoes? Oh. Well, and uh, Paul was saying, you know, keep your eye on it. We'll see how it goes. But Arthur wasn't happy with that. So we went round to the back door to Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was in, in charge of production. And he was very persuasive. And he persuaded Steve to make him 200 pairs of this new shoe which he did. He took it back down to uh, LA, gave it to the instructors and some of the girls that were leading it. And that was it. End of story. Because whilst we had uh, probably two or three months were really, had this happened in any other part of the world, Reebok would have gone out of business because the shoes were made of glove leather. Now, glove leather is just like a piece of paper. You can pick it up and you can tear it. It's just so easy. So put somebody's foot in it and it was just at the sides that were breaking away. Um, we did cure that. <laughs> and in many ways, I've got to say that, uh, you know, I'm saying you can't do it, you can't do it. So they line it with nylon. They put nylon on the inside to strengthen it. That's great. And I'm saying, look, you've now stuck nylon to it. You stopped the leather from breathing. Mm. Oh, right. So what do we do? They punched holes in the front. They put holes in it to allow it to breathe. And this is marketing. This is like, you know, we're moving forward. This is not shoemaking. This is marketing. Shoemakers stop at the idea that you don't use glove leather for shoes. Eventually, we got that right, and it was more like garment leather. So the garment leather would, would weigh. But the girls loved the shoes that much. Even after a month, the shoes found, they went out and bought a new pair. But then when Jane Fonda went out and bought a pair to use in her videos, she actually bought a pair of Reebok to use in her videos, her exercise videos. And it just, all of a sudden, it exploded. We were a $9 million company at that time. Year after that, we were 30 million. Year after that, we were 90 million. Then 300 million, then 900 million. So within four to five years, we'd gone from zero to almost a billion. And that was the explosion. And that was women. Because... This was just made for a woman's foot. And the men started saying, why can't we get these shoes? Why can't we? And, but it was on a woman's last, only in women's sizes. So by the time uh, we started making them uh, for, well, different sports, but in that soft leather, by that time, the men were so hungry, they just went out and bought the shoes. And then that was, the, I think the first one was the Exafit trainer. And, and so it just grew. So that was, that was how Reebok really grew. Hitting on that, being able to see something. And it wasn't me. It wasn't Paul Feynman. It was Arthur Martinez who spotted that. But, you know, we were part of a, a company, a part of a successful company. And a winning company, that success, it breeds other things and ideas. And I got out of the company at the end of 1989 because we were then almost $4 billion. After putting Paul Feynman on in the USA, I, I was just going around the world 
putting on different distribution. I put 30 distributors on. I remember coming to Australia very well and putting the handlers on. The handlers took over in Australia. And uh, so I was going around the world doing this. And by the time I retired, I'd put 30 different distributions on all around the world. And uh, the company got that big. But now we're full of accountants, full of lawyers, and a lot of people in between, and we had become corporate. And uh, at that point, yeah, I mean, there was some great fun. We put on the pro-celebrity tennis matches in Monte Carlo, and I was hosting those. So we got all the people from, from Hollywood. They, they were always in there. You know, you're meeting people like Sinatra. You're meeting, um, I've got a list here, Linda Evans, John Collins, Frank Tyler, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Jane Seymour, Chuck Norris, Robert De Niro, uh, Michael Caine, Charles Neston, they, they, they were just endless. And, and those were great days. But, you know, you, you do realize that, uh, yeah, this is, this is going to end. You know, it's, it's okay. But I decided to get out at a certain point, and that was at the end of 1989. Because I was just uh, traveling the world. You know, wherever I went, I was picked up in a limousine. I'd been used to just grabbing a taxi when I could get it <laughs> in my early travels. But now I picked up by a limousine, got to the best hotels. You know, we're dining at the best restaurants. And I'm thinking, but there's no challenge anymore. This is not a challenge for me. No. So now was the time to get out. Okay. What do I do now? I have a new challenge. The book. <laughs> Shoemaker is my new challenge. So do you think that... You know, with the, I suppose, the eventually you, you're getting out and leaving because it, it, it very much read like it was a gradual, you know, you, you formed the American part as a percentage and then you sold that off and then Paul bought the other part and then you stayed on as ambassador. It was this, you know, constant, I suppose, uh, changing of roles, winding down. Do you think that made it easier rather than some mystery billionaire turning up and saying, here's X amount, give me the keys, thanks for coming, where that would have been quite a hard thing to walk away from as opposed to the way it played out? It probably was uh, much easier to do that. But for me, it wasn't a question of uh, who's going to buy the company. It was a question of, Joe Foster, you've done what you've done. You've got to a stage. We need new people. We need people to take over. You know, you can't keep on running a company from being 23 to being 55 and, and you, know, you run out, not so much you run out of ideas, but ideas change. New things come in. So you, you've got to bring new people in, allow new people the ownership, because that way they put their soul into it. And that's, that helps it to grow. It grows when people believe. If people come in and just want a nine to five job, you know, those, those, some people do that, of course, but, you know, Part of the, uh, the, the mechanism of running the company, they have to be, it's, it's your family. And yeah. they're there all the time. You know, we, when we were in the UK, we, uh, we were talking to America, well, we'll say it's mid, midday, 5 p.m. So we, we'd be talking till maybe 8, 9 p.m. at night with America. And in the morning, we'd be up early because all our product was coming from Korea. So... By the time it was midday in Korea, we were just about getting up. So we had to be up early. So our days, yeah, seven till seven, that was all the time. But we loved it. And everybody loved it. Everybody's part of it. And yes, we were lucky to see the success. When you, you know, when you could see and you could feel the success. I think this is so much motivation in that. So people, you need really good people. You don't need egos. You just need people. And yeah. a lot of good people. We want to belong and we want to drive the company. And obviously Reebok eventually then sold to, to Adidas, your fierce rival. Um, once that happens and it joins within another massive corporation, do you think that there's any hope that part of that culture and, and exactly what you were saying about the people that coming in and treating it like a second family, do you, do you think that fails it to exist in that dynamic as it's, it's all over once it gets to that level? I think that there's a definitely an, an underground. Well, I, I don't think it's the people in the company then. I think it's the people who grew up with Reebok. Because mm -hmm. even today, when, when I talk to a lot of people, certainly a lot of the Americans say, I remember buying my first pair of Reeboks. And, oh, they were expensive. They were pumps. Ah, we had to save up. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. And then those, you know, those, 
So it's those are the people who've kept Reebok alive, the people who have worn Reebok, who have a love for the brand. I mean, at one time, we, we actually supplied 60% of the American market. 6% of Americans had worn a pair of Reeboks, you know, which was an incredible amount of people. So those people are in the late 40s, early 50s, you know, in the 50s, and they have money now. Yeah. You know, they, they have a position now, and they have memories, and they, they still love Reebok. Fortunately, um, they've not lost that feel for Reebok. So there's still a good feel. Adidas, yeah. no. Adidas lost the plot altogether for Reebok. Um, you can't blame Adidas. They, they pay nearly $4 billion for the company. Wow. You know, when you, when you pay that sort of money, it's like you're almost entitled to do what you want. Yeah. It's, it's your company. Um, so you couldn't expect them to sort of, well, they didn't build Reebok. They built Adidas. They took a lot of the assets from Reebok and put them into Adidas. And that helped Adidas to build, which is, you know, and people are saying, well, Adidas didn't do Reebok anymore. But, well, you know, they bought it. And that for me is like, you know, who's to blame? The people who sell it or the people who buy it? And yeah. th these are the questions. But Reebok remained. Reebok remained strong. And they've been sold again. So uh, only recently, it was the 1st of March when ABG took over. That's uh, Authentic Brands Group. They're the American group. They, they're really a licensing group. And at the moment, what they're doing is licensing the Reebok name. Now, this, uh, given time, that wouldn't be the best way to do it. Mm, but what, yeah. Yeah, in the immediate sense, what is now happening is that we will, the visibility of Reebok will go up immensely. All of a sudden, you'll see Reebok globally. And they, Reebok, when they bought it, was about a $1.5 billion company. It had gone down from being a $4 billion to a $1.5 under Adidas. They expected to be back at $5 billion next year. Wow. So that's wow. a tremendous growth. And by, by 2030, they expect to be $10 billion. I think they're, under, they're underselling at that point. I think they'll be about $15 billion by 2030. They only need to do some of the right things because there's a, there's a lot of people who still love the brand and who still like to see that brand uh, growing again. But and in that are period, you still, still got, like, as far as their current range of shoes, do you still keep a close eye on what they're releasing and, and what they've got out? Yeah, I mean, we, we're plugged into the, the Reebok alerts for, on Google, so we, we see everything that's coming out. And, um, well, I've been part of one or two of the uh, later sort of collaborations. We were, in, uh, we were in Dubai, and they've just done a collaboration. Amongst few did a collaboration, and they wanted me to do a bit of narration on it. So they, they asked me to do some, you know, asked oh, me some questions. And they produced a video with me talking on this, and it sold out within minutes. <laughs> Big. So, you know, there's an awful lot of things going on. It's, it's, it is an exciting time. Um, you know, you can do the best out of anything. It's just a matter of which way you look at it. You know, if you say, oh, it's going to be licensed now and there's going to be six or eight different manufacturing units and, but, you know, once that happens, great. Then you've just got to say, well, how are we going to pull that together? I don't think, I don't think ABG have a strategy because AGB, they've been used to buying failing brands, brands which have been really going there. And then they use the name and they license the name. They don't actually build a brand. They just right. sell product. Now what they've got, they've got to decide with Reebok, which is the biggest purchase they've ever made. Uh, they've got to decide whether they want it to be a brand or just a name. And uh, I, I think I think they're going to be, I think they're going to find themselves having to make it a brand. I think they're going to find themselves in that. There's going to be too much pressure to say, right, where's the strategy? They don't need a strategy yet. They don't need that. All they need to do is to make the shoe more visible. And that's the first thing. So you'll get tremendous visibility. I forget who now was taking on the, the Australian market, but there is about six or eight different distributors. We, we're going to America in three weeks' time, but we're also going to Toronto. And the new people in Canada, they just want to meet us. The new people just want to meet us. So we can see, and you know, if we have any uh, persuasion at all, we shall start talking to people about coming together, 
making sure that everybody else is working together yep. and you've got a, a common purpose. So uh, yeah. it, it is it is bringing out uh, a strategy, a culture, bringing out that Reebok culture again, that feeling for the brand and where we could take it. But, I mean, this is what happens if people get behind something and people have, you know, it's, it's not just, uh, oh, we're just selling another pair of shoes. We're just, no, we're selling Reebok. You know, you've got to be selling the brand. And yeah. it has to be the brand, not just a name. And uh, and I think that the enthusiasm for the brand is going to, is going to really take uh, uh, ABG into a different dimension. And, you know, ABG, um, well, Reebok was on the market from Adidas and everybody said it was worth about a billion, a billion dollars. That was it. Now, they, you know, they paid 3.6 billion, but now since it uh, sold off and they've not done what they could do with Reebok, it was worth a billion. And uh, I, I knew at least three of the companies that were bidding for Reebok. Uh, I didn't know ABG. We knew of them, of course, and ABG came in and ABG bought it for 2.5 billion. And uh, one of the companies that we knew were interested, they came up and said, wow, we didn't know we were so far away <laughs> from <laughs> the bid. And so everyone now is saying, but 2.5, they've overpaid. Just as everybody said, I did this overpaid at $3.6 billion. Uh, now they got $2.5 billion back from ABG. Everybody's saying they overpaid. But uh, did they? I don't know. Because yeah. I think one of the best things that ABG could do is doing exactly what they're doing now. It's much more visible. Do these deals for retailing, but they've got to then put a control in. And then I would hope they might float the company. Oh, and if okay. they float the company, they would get the $2.5 back because by that time they'd have gone to a, a $5 billion. In, in two years, they would go to a $5 billion company. They're, they're going to float that for a lot of money and get their $2.5 billion back overnight. Easy and still own fifty percent of the business. Yeah, they still own a lot. So if they do that and then they grow that center, which is going to be the control, the brains, the ideas, uh, you know, the innovations, and and take take Reebok then, well, back to the number one. Yeah, yeah. Is there any reason why not? And it it's all to do with the people, the enthusiasm, the, the feelings for what can, what can happen. So. Yeah, you know, I think it's exciting times for Reebok. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're over in America. In fact, we're over in America in the mid mid June to September. We're doing twelve weeks tour with the book with wow. Shoemaker. Gee, okay. yeah. You know, uh, just on that, uh, England and America. In the book, you mentioned that you noticed a huge difference of culture between. In America, it was you know. Uh, proud to, to strive for more. But back in England, it was like, no, stick in your lane. Um, mediocre is, is where you want to be and, and don't push too far past that. That's right. Do you think, does that still, I mean, I've got a soft spot for England. I've always related to the old English architecture and I love old English TV shows like Open All Hours. Um, <laughs> so that difference between the cultures still existent or do you think now it's much more level playing field? It's becoming more level, but the culture is still the same. Yeah, the culture is still one of don't go beyond what you're expected to do. You know? wow, okay. stay, stay in your, your, your own lane and whatever. There's much more. Now we have uh, computers and everything's going digital and everything, all the technology. I think this has been sort of it's drifting away more. Uh, but anybody in, in sort of middle age between the 50s or something like that still has that feeling that they know your place. Jeez. You know, oh. we are, yes. Um, I think That's the whole of Europe has that sort of feeling that you should know your place. And I think that's a European thing. Uh, whereas people who've emigrated to America, Canada, Australia, they've been able to open their minds a bit more to, uh, well, you know, the horizon. Well, when you get to that horizon, there's another <coughs> horizon. There is no such thing as reaching it. It's, it's, it keeps going. The horizon keeps going, so you keep going. You know, everything is sort of... A, achievable yeah. everything you know the uh, they talk about education and the, the problem if you get too much education you get steered down a route and you can't get out of that you will become an accountant you will become a lawyer you will become somebody who uh, does a specific job and, and it's only the people who don't really go down too much education that they think a bit they step at one side and they do other things 
um, we've been, uh, I've been doing talks at universities for the MBA classes. And they, these are, you know, these they are bright people. But, um, you know, they, they ask the question, well, you know, we all want to be entrepreneurs. And yeah, you can all learn from an MBA. That's great. Learn as much as you can. But do understand that if you want to, uh, if you want to do things, you want to be an entrepreneur, you've got to take risks. Mm-hmm. And MBAs don't teach you how to take risks. They oh, teach you point. business administration. <laughs> and so you've got to be, you've got to be willing to just take that risk. Sometimes it's a quite a simple one. It's what you, what you know, but it's not what people will teach you. If people could teach you how to be an entrepreneur, everybody would be an entrepreneur. But it's not there. And there has to be something inside you which says, no, I can do better than this. You know, I can do something different. Or, you know, what, can, what can we find? Sometimes you're just looking for it rather than you know, what, you know where to go. And, you know, everybody has the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. But most people see this opportunity and, and I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And then it's gone. Yeah, no, that, it's a very good point you make, definitely. Um, well, Joe... Look, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Your whole story is. I, I, it was one of the best books I've ever read. And you know, you, you you get to the end and you wish it wouldn't end, and then you feel like you um, it's become a person that you've developed a relationship with. You get you feel like you get to know you so well. It's a, it's just such a well written book. It's it's just the story yeah, came out. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's it's beautifully put together. So yeah, it must be obviously another piece of work that you should be very very proud of. And it's great that you know that that's forever. You know, it's one thing to to see a brand keep existing uh, decades and decades um, after you haven't been involved of it. But because of the book, you know, that anyone at any point in time forever after can go back and, and really sense um, where it started, how it started, why it started, um, you know, and, and, and that's part of the reason why I put this podcast together is just try and find stories. So they've got a place to live um, right. because it's, I just think it's so important when someone jumps on and wants to know more, um, you know, it's just that, 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 that place for a story to live forever is such an important thing. And it, it's quite unusual, really, because why did I write it? And people say, why did you write a book? And I said, well, I retired at the end of 1989, and I'm in Tenerife, very nice, best climate in the world, probably, and lying back and just uh, enjoying. And then we've got some computers, and I'm looking on Wikipedia and Google, and they're telling me, how Reebok began. They're telling me where Reebok came from. And there's a photograph for this is Joe Foster, the uh, founder of Reebok. Who? Don't even know who he is. Just not a clue who that person was. So oh, I, I thought, wow. well, you know, this is probably about time we told the story and then it's there so that no, people are not inventing where it came from. And uh, it gave me the opportunity to go back to my grandfather in 1895 and J.W. Foster's. I mean, they were, this was such a famous brand in its day, in its 20s, 30s. Uh, this was such a famous brand, and yet nobody would have known about it. It would have died away, gone something in history. But I was able to bring that into the book, and then how this came became my story. Because in Google, they were saying, oh, yeah, J.W. Foster's just changed the name to Reebok. <laughs> like, you think, no, no, no. no. There's a story here. There's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of chapters missing. Because <laughs> yeah, I really I appreciate your time and I've enjoyed spending time with you so much. Oh, that's great. That, that's great. Now, thank you again for that. And make sure you do you, you keep my uh, name in mind if you ever decide to come to Australia. Um, We've got yeah, we would love to have you over here. Okay. I look forward to that. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much again. I, I hope to speak to you to again soon. Anytime. Okay. Thank, thank you. Joe. Thanks, everyone, for sticking to the end of the podcast. I hope you did enjoy it. As I said, if uh, if you do want to know more, by all means, grab the book called Shoemaker by Joe Foster. If you do like the show, if you enjoyed the show, um, please do share it. That is the only way that the uh, the show does grow. It is it is made for people that want to hear stories. It's made for people that want to tell stories, um, and that's really all this show is about. So, you know, if if there is anyone you think that you that would enjoy listening to it, please do feel free to share the show, send on a recommendation. I will do my best to get another episode out to you as soon as I can. I've got a couple in the wings waiting to be edited, and I've got a couple of very special interviews. Um, trying to get sorted but there is more that I am going to try and get out as soon as I can 
and you can always find out more at bumpingintocomau Thanks very much, and I will speak to you on the next episode.